yesterday we were going through in chapter five and we were describing how frivolity and and um, frivolity and lightheadedness can literally bring you from a, a good place to bring you to very far down to a place where you could actually end up violating some of the, the most stringent prohibitions in the Torah. It's, it's step by step of not taking seriously what the purpose of life is. So we're on page 34, and he's going to try to explain how this is so, that someone who's a serious and a thinking Jew, someone who tries to do the right thing, and due to the effects of frivolity and the effects of, of lightheadedness, it could actually bring one, it'll actually end up bringing someone to uh, to And why is that so? Whereas the maintenance of vigilance depends on one's focused awareness, frivolity is totally involved in distracting one's heart from all clear thought and analysis. And as a result, the thoughts and fearing the eternal will never find their way into his heart. And so what does frivolity do? What frivolity does is when you sit there and you laugh at things that should be taken seriously, what you're doing is you're finding the humor in things. And that's important to find the humor in things. But sometimes when you're thinking in frivolous finding humor in things, when you get focused on that, you lose track of what's really important. And when you lose track of what's really important, you lose that, the clear mindedness and the lack of, and, and the understanding that we have intuitively, certain things are wrong and we have that intuitively. But what happens is when you, when you make fun of that idea and you take a very serious idea and you make fun of it and you make fun of a small little point about it, but that itself can lead to a completely different attitude to something that really should be very grave. And, and over time, it can lead to very bad things happening. Now he wants to talk about the third thing that takes us away from vigilance. What's the third thing? That's derision. Let us look at the harmfulness of derision and its immense corrupting influence. Compare it to a shield smeared with oil that deflects the arrows, throwing them aside and flinging them to the ground, preventing them from reaching the person's body. Right? A beautiful analogy in which he's describing derision acts as a shield that is smeared with oil that the arrows of rebuke that someone's giving you rebuke that's well-meaning rebuke and instead the 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 shield has oil on it and the arrows that hit the shield and they just go they go flying away right that's the way derision operates in the face of both rebuke and one's conscience with one's with one derisive comment or one minor jest a person will repudiate much of the spiritual awakening and inspiration that his heart had engaged in through seeing or hearing matters that had the power to motivate him to an assessment and analysis of his deeds. I remember distinctly learning this safer, this book, in ninth grade. And my Rebbe at that time, his name was Rabbi Licht, Rabbi Yosef Licht. And I remember learning this book with him. And he was going through this chapter, and he was talking about leitzonis, right? Because in, in Hebrew, the word is leitzon. A, 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 a letz is someone who makes fun of things, right? And just makes, makes fun of everything, mocks things, right? Literally. And leitzonis is the category of that type of behavior. And I remember him talking about this, how one word of a leitz can take an entire a schmooze, an entire ethical discourse in which people can be elevated and inspired. And they walk out of that discourse. And one person makes one joke just to copy the person who was speaking and just to copy him for a second in one word and it can take everything back and it will disappear. And at the time, as a ninth grader, wasn't so mature, I didn't really appreciate the wisdom in that. I, I didn't. Um, but now that I'm older, I, I do appreciate that. And I do appreciate that that's human nature, right? Because we're really always poised and we're really, it, it's, always, it, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, right? And we're always poised. Do we want to go this way? Do we want to go that way? Everything that we do. So 
even if you get inspired and you have that moment of, of inspiration, that moment of elevation where you're ready to commit to something, that one little joke afterwards and boom, you're ready to slide right back down. It's like, like shoots and ladders, right? So you're all the way up there and then you, you hit that one that takes you right back down to the bottom. That's all it takes, right? And yes, my, 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 my ninth grade rugby was pretty, was pretty wise about that. Um, sorry, Normally I lock the door tonight, I forgot. Um, okay. So, and not because of the weakness of the ideas or because of any emotional failing on his part, but rather as a result of the power of derision, which destroys any ethical standards and the fear of the eternal. It was about this matter that the prophet Yeshayo, Isaiah, squawked like a crane, for he realized that this is what prevented his reproofs from having an impact, thereby denying sinners the opportunity to repent. These are the words of Yeshayo, the prophet Isaiah. And now do not ridicule, lest your suffering be intensified. What does that mean that if you ridicule, the suffering will be intensified? What is that referring to? It's referring to one of the axioms of Jewish belief, which is that when Hashem wants to direct us back to the right path, right? As it says in the Torah itself, in, in Deuteronomy, Devarim, it says that when Hashem rebukes us, he rebukes us the same way a father rebukes a son. And Hashem rebukes us with a love, trying to convince us that what we're doing right now is wrong. The same way a son is about to run into the street. A parent might take them and give them a slap on the hand to make sure that they don't run into the street. But they're doing that out of love, right? But if the son would never go into the street, they wouldn't get that slap on the hand. But if they're about to go into the street, they get that slap on the hand. But of course, that's for an end result that the father wants the best for the son. So when Hashem causes us punishment sometimes, that punishment is to direct us back from the path where we have been straying to the path where we should be focused on, right? Now, Hashem only needs to do that if we cannot come to the recognition on our own what the right thing to do is. So what Yeshayah was saying is, if you ridicule, and those who I am giving Musr to, those who I am rebuking and telling them that behavior is unacceptable, when someone else ridicules that, or they themselves ridicule that, what they are affecting is that that Musr is not going to be affected. That rebuke is not going to be accepted properly. And when it's not accepted properly, you're leaving Hashem with no choice but to actually cause a punishment to get us back onto the straight and narrow path. And the sages of blessed memory have already decreed that the scorner invites suffering upon himself. This is what scripture itself elucidates. Punishment awaits the scorner. This is something that reason dictates. For one who is inspired through reflection and learning need not suffer physically. He will repent without this by virtue of the thoughts of repentance that emerge in his heart in response to what he reads or hears of admonishments and reproofs. The scorners, however, who are entrenched in their scoffing are unimpressed by reproofs. In their case, the corrective measures can only come through punishment. Their scornfulness will not be effective in warding off punishment the way they ward off admonishment. Therefore, the severity of punishment is determined by the true judge in accordance with the gravity of the sin and its consequences. This is what they of blessed memory have taught us. The punishment of derision is harsh, for it begins with suffering and ends in annihilation. As it says, lest your suffering be strengthened, for I have heard annihilation and excision. So this is the consequences of, of being of mocking when someone is giving you muster and someone is giving you well-intended rebuke with the intention that you can change your behavior and you refuse to listen, then what's going to happen is, unfortunately, Hashem is going to have no choice but to actually give punishments that will, that will uh, then put you back onto the straight and narrow path. So I want to speak for three minutes about, about Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is tonight, the 33rd day of the Omer, right? and it's a, it's a day of celebration. And certainly in Israel, it's a, normally a tremendous celebration. Uh, it's like a, 
Hard to describe it if you've never been there. Personally, I have never been in Meron on, on Lagba Omer because it's not my personal cup of tea, but it's described as uh, the world's longest uh, rave by some people. Uh, it's 250,000 people getting together for 24 hours straight and just dancing and singing. And they go to the, the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, Avadia, have you ever been there? Um, and what's it like? Would you describe it as a 24-hour rave or not necessarily? Uh, definitely. I think they're crazy. <laughs> I think they're overboard. And, and they make a huge, huge deal about it. And uh, it's almost like a craze. Right. It's, right. Not, it's not my cup. I, I like it a little bit more orderly. I've been there. I have been to, to, uh, to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I've never been uh, there on Lapa Omer. Now, I think when you get closer to the actual uh, cover, and that's where the bonfire is, I think it's a little bit more orderly, and it's not as wild, and it is people who are actually elevating themselves on a spiritual level. But Lapa Omer is a tremendously happy day. And the question is, what, what's, what's the idea of Lapa Omer, really, right? So the... So uh, there's two different ideas that, that are discussed about Lagbomer. What the Gemara tells us is that, that the Midrash tells us that Lagbomer is the day when the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying. Like the students of Rabbi Akiva, the 24,000 peers of students of Rabbi right. Akiva, who had treated themselves, who had treated each other with a lack of respect. The day in which they stopped dying, that's Lagbomer. And therefore the Avelos, right, the, the customs that, you know, let's say I, I'm not shaving or, or cutting my hair right now, that's due to the fact that we are mourning for the fact that the students of, of Rabbi Akiva died during these days. And why did they die? They died because they did not treat each other with a proper level of respect. How did they die? They go, the Midrash tells us that they died through, um, through plague. Right? It's unclear what exactly that plague was. Some people want to suggest it's because they were supporters of, of Bar Kachba's rebellion. We don't know, but let's assume that it was a plague, you know, very reminiscent to what's happening right now. Why did they die? They died because they didn't treat each other with the proper level of respect. Now, that's the students of Rabbi Kiva. What's the connection to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? So if we look a little deeper, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is one of the five students of Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva taught 24,000, either 24,000 students or 24,000 peers of students, and they all died. And Rabbi Kiva said, I'm starting all over again. And this time he started with five students. Those five students are the great who taught us so much of the Torah Shabbat Peh that we have today. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the student who got the, the Torah Shabbat Peh, the part of the oral Torah from Rabbi Akiva that is more related to the Kabbalah, to the hidden parts, the Nistar, the hidden parts of Torah. And that's what he revealed to us. So it's unclear exactly what the connection is to Lagba Omer still. Some people want to suggest that perhaps Lagba Omer is the day in which he died. And since it's the day in which he died, it's also the day in which he revealed a lot of the Kabbalah to us. And therefore, it's the day in which we celebrate his death. But what I want to bring out is something a little bit different, if you bear with me for, for two more minutes. What the, the idea is, during Sphira, it's a time when we're supposed to be focused on showing each other love and respect. Rabbi Akiva himself is the famous person who said, Zek Klal Gadol Torah. This is a fundamental principle about Torah. What is it? The that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who said it first? The Torah says it first. Right? Hashem says it in the Torah. It's in Vayikra. Hashem says you have to love your neighbor as yourself. But Rabbi Kiva said, not only did Hashem say it, but this is a fundamental about Torah view. Now, Rabbi Kiva himself was the one who said that. And his students were the one who didn't necessarily take it to heart in the way that they should have. And therefore, they actually violated this idea through not showing each other the proper level of respect. And that's why they get punished. So what's the antidote to that, right? The antidote to that, and particularly during the days of Sphira, when we're supposed to be working on elevating ourselves, that we left Egypt, 
We were slaves. We left Egypt. Now we're going to be getting the Torah seven weeks from now. How do we ready to take a Torah? We're a bunch of slaves. We have no connection to the Torah. We have no connection to Hashem. Over those seven weeks, through building our, our behaviors, through building our characteristics, through working on ourselves, we're ready to accept the Torah seven weeks later. That's why we chose to do the Messiah Sisharim now. Now, I just want to end with one point, that, and that's something which obviously we should all be focused on today. But one last point that I just saw about 20 minutes ago. So I've been involved a little bit with this initiative to try to uh, collect convalescent plasma. And I, I'm doing a very small step over here. I, I just happened to put together some of the medical advisory board with the people who are actually involved on the ground with collecting it. So one of the people on the medical advisory board is an Indian fellow who lives in San Francisco. His name is Dr. Garish Vyas. He's 87 years old, professor emeritus at UCSF wrote like a textbook about plasma transfusion 50 years ago. So he, he knows this stuff. He sent me an email a couple of, maybe, maybe an hour ago, and I read it half hour ago. And the email was an email from his daughter-in-law who lives in, in uh, Toronto. His daughter-in-law is from MIT, it was an MIT trained economist. And she wrote a, a white paper to a bunch of economists in MIT. And she, he forwarded me this email from his daughter-in-law with the paper that she was referencing. What does it say in this paper? The, the economists in MIT are trying to figure out how are we going to solve the issue that there's not enough plasma supply to take care of the demand. So they're trying to figure out ways to incentivize donors. And they actually have a formula. And the formula goes through how to calculate if it is purely altruistic, what percentage of people are going to donate plasma? As opposed to if it's incentivized, what percentage of people are going to donate plasma? So I wrote an email to to Garish, who is Indian, and I said, Garish, they never met an Orthodox Jew. Because these Orthodox Jews in New York City, they are donating the plasma without any needs of incentivization, right? They're donating it purely altruistically. And that formula goes out the window when you talk about people who are ready to do things altruistically. I think it's beautiful that this is the time period in which they're doing this. And they're making this tremendous Kiddush Hashem, this tremendous sanctification of God's name. Right, with the publicity that they're getting for the fact that they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart. And they don't need to be motivated. They don't need to be incentivized with these deals that in case they end up needing it in the future or family member needs it in the future, or all these calculations that these economists are making, they're not recognizing is that the Torah and through following the Torah, you can reach a level where the altruism completely subordinates or not subordinates, but completely blows away any sort of incentivization uh, mechanism to try to get people to donate plasma. So I don't know if the economists are going to take that into effect, but they should take that into effect. If you follow the Torah, then you don't even need to come on to this incentivization to get people to donate plasma to save lives. I thought, I thought it was nice that I, I personally happened to have seen this, like on Lagba Omer, the holiday in which we think about the fact how we should be treating each other with love and respect. But it was nice to, to see this idea right now.